0: So yes, Dodge had the V10 engine in their trucks. When they wanted to develop the Viper, Dick Winkles flew out to Lamborghini at the time and said, we need to know how to do it with an aluminum block and what we need to change and what we need to make better. So they took some parts of the design from that motor and moved it over to the Viper. But a lot of things did change in the process.
1: Welcome to the HBO In Podcast, I'm Andre your host and in this episode we're joined by Mike from Havoc Performance. Mike's business specialises in the Dodge Viper platform which is a fairly niche and fairly specific platform. He not only looks after, maintains and modifies these cars, he also is involved in collection management for a few high net worth clients that happen to have a fairly large collection of cars like the Dodge Viper who need someone to look after them, maintain them and make sure that any time they want to go out for a bit of a joyride, each of their cars is performing at its best. We talked to Mike about how he founded this business and his background before getting into this business. Mike's a pretty young guy as well and he got involved from a very young age so we talk about some of the tricky aspects of getting owners of fairly expensive sports cars to trust what is a younger person in the industry we we'll also dive into some of the intricacies and idiosyncrasies of the viper platform as it's changed and morphed over the different generations particularly around how some of the more modern generations of viper can present some tricky parts when it comes to modifying them in terms of adding an aftermarket ECU to control the tune. We're talking that note about the pros and cons of aftermarket standalone ECUs versus reflashing the factory fitted ECU and where there can be shortcomings with reflashing in some instances. Before we jump into our chat with Mike, for those who are new to the HPA TuneIn podcast, High Performance Academy is an online training school, we specialise in teaching people how to tune EFI, how to build performance engines, how to design and construct wiring harnesses, we also cover topics on race driver education, race car setup, 3D modelling and CAD as well as fabrication. You can find a complete list of all of our courses if you head to hpacademy.com forward slash courses and as a podcast listener you get to use the coupon code podcast75 to get you $75 off the purchase of your very first HPA course. All of our courses are delivered by online video based modules that you can watch from anywhere in the world provided you've got an internet connection. This gives you the benefit of being able to learn from the comfort of your own place and you can also learn at your own pace. You'll find a link to our courses as well as that coupon code in the show notes to make it super easy to find. Alright enough with our introduction, let's get into our interview now. All right, Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming along. And as usual, let's uh, dive into your background to start with and find out how you got interested in cars and, and Vipers actually specifically.
0: So basically I was probably about, I mean, I grew up around cars all my life. Like my dad always worked on his own cars and had a Mustang and some other Mustangs through his life. So we always kind of screwed around when I was younger, but it didn't start really taking off until I got into my own car and had to pay somebody to fix it because I didn't know how to do it. And I was like, I'm never doing this again. (laughs) And that's like where things started to really kind of take off. I ended up working at an auto parts store, learning that side for years. And we actually, I had a friend of ours growing up that has also has a car collection and he got older and couldn't do his oil changes anymore. So I started going to his place and doing that on the weekends for him and he watched me grow and as I started to do more and more things with friends cars and everything else he kind of continued to give me more and more and that's kind of like where I learned it all was like through friends cars and in the very beginning forums and like my dad used to wrench on cars so he knew a lot I really like and had friends that knew a ton about cars too so like kind of all worked together and it started out as brakes turned into rebuilding motors and putting transes in and upgrading fuel systems. So really like a lot of it through high school and even college, that's kind of how it started. And it was like, oh, this is fun.
1: So so no no formal qualifications though to make you a so called mechanic. Correct. Just just self taught.
0: Outside of like I have my safety inspection, state inspection licenses. Outside of that stuff, no, I don't have any like actual education from the schooling on it it was all basically self-taught
1: I'm interested to dive into this point because it is something that comes up and your experience probably mirrors my own I I was never a qualified mechanic I've never done any formal qualifications but yeah at least when I was running my performance business I'd, I'd like to think we would have been able to collectively run rings around most franchise mechanics and As usual I'll just say I do apologise to the franchise mechanics that are are maybe listening to this and currently want to send death threats but uh, that that was the reality of it. I guess what I'm getting at here is I, I never saw when I was developing my own business an absolute need to go down the path of formal qualifications because at least when you're looking at performance orientated modifications and mechanical work, often that's quite unique and separate from what you know, mechanics are doing in a franchise dealership in this day and age. Is, is that a statement that rings true with you?
0: That is 100%. I always joke with my one of my techs that's full-time now, Like he always grew up going to school for this, doing the dealership thing. And like I always joke with him that I need to reset his brain and fix all the things that the franchises broke, just on certain on how they originally were. And, you know, in dealerships, it's, or franchises, get it out as fast as you can. And that's never how it is at the shop. It's, we get it out. So it's right. A hundred percent of the time, like, I don't want things leaving unless they're perfect. And in the beginning it was like. A little bit tougher for him to understand that, but he got it and understood it and now everything's happy-go-lucky, but it took a little bit to break those habits.
1: Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. The franchise dealership, or just, yeah, I, I say franchise dealership. What we're really talking about is a general mechanical repair workshop. The mindset and focus is fair to say quite different to a performance workshop. And yeah, what you're saying there, retraining a staff member to, to think and work how you need for a high level performance workshop is quite a challenge because I've, I've, I've been through that myself. I guess the, the other question that comes along with this is given what you're doing now with your business, and we will dive into this, obviously, in detail as we go through our, our chat today. Is there any downsides you saw with not going through and, and getting formal qualifications? Or I guess because it's your business that you started and founded, does it really not matter? You're not, I guess you're not going to not employ yourself.
0: Yeah, there's like definitely, I think, some parts that would have been nice to know, just because like I haven't necessarily gone through that stuff. But It's one of those things where I've always valued networking. I know a lot of people. So if I ever ran into a problem, I could always call somebody and ask and figure it out. As long as you can figure the problem out and solve the problem, everything is good. And that was how it always was for me with business. So just because I didn't have any of that background. I had a lot of friends and I knew a lot of people that had a lot more background than me. So if I ever got stuck on something, it was easy enough for me to solve the problem.
1: Yeah, that, that's a good point. I, I have raised this on the podcast in previous episodes, but it, it does bear repeating is I think a lot of people, and this kind of comes mainly more from the tuning scene because tuners are super secretive and you know everyone thinks that they're the best and therefore we can't possibly talk to others. They'll steal our secrets. Or whatever bullshit they want to believe, nothing of that is reality but that's still the situation and hence they kind of like close themselves off from the rest of the industry and the stupidity of that is you're always going to end up with problem cars that come in an issue that you haven't seen before and I realised reasonably early in my career that going down that path of secrecy and keeping to myself was only going to end up hurting me and I got to a, a favourable position where even today I have friends I consider probably some of the smartest dudes in the industry, in both inside of New Zealand, Australia, and around the world, who I can ring up when I see something that is new to me. Uh, case in point: a, a couple of years ago, we were prepping a Nissan VR38 powered Pikes Peak hill climb car to go over to Pikes Peak. We're having some issues with the cam control. It wasn't an engine that I'd originally tuned or built, and it seemed to be oil pressure related. I jumped on the phone to uh, Tony Palo from T1 Race and he's like, Oh, yeah, it's, it's been decked. It's this problem. It's a seal that breaks. It's real, real simple, real common. And it, it was absolutely spot on. So, I mean, he saved me hours of trying to go down the path of finding this all out myself. And likewise, I have people ring me, go, Hey, you know, Evo, for example, we've seen this. Yep. Okay. It's this. Go do this, this, and this. And, and you're golden. And, and I think just keeping humble and open to relationships and networking is so so important sorry i've gone just down a bit of a rabbit hole there but i thought that was worth mentioning no
0: nah, that's uh it's 100 worth mentioning i am have become friends with a lot of like other shops and viper techs throughout the country and we all talk to each other if they're running into something wacky they'll say hey you ever seen this? And I can help them, they can help me. And it's actually worked out really well for a lot of us. But we also don't have the like scarcity mindset of like, there's enough work out there for everybody if you do good work. So the guy I'm helping out that I'm friends with in Florida isn't necessarily going to be taking work from
1: me. He's, you know,
0: 20 hours from me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't make a lot of sense to think that uh, you're in competition.
0: So why wouldn't I want to work with him? So like we're even doing things as I'm going to be working with him on developing some part stuff together that we're working together as a team and it'll have both our logos on it. So it's like, you got to work together with other people because if you do it by yourself, you'll never be able to grow into these huge things. You want to be able to have people you can call if you need help with something.
1: Sure. All right, let's roll back before we sort of dive too deep down into the, the Viper platform itself. But your sort of your experience through through high school, what what sort of cars were you personally driving, wrenching on, and, and were you were you racing these? Were you involved in any motorsport? Was this just the daily driver slash cruiser? Were you doing any performance upgrades on them? What was your sort of learning curve like?
0: My first car was actually a saline Ford Focus. I actually still have it. I just retired it the other like a couple of weeks ago when I bought another car. But basically, I was screwing around with that. A buddy of mine had a Honda CRX that we rebuilt time and time again between putting different motors in it, transmissions in it, suspensions in it. We did a little bit of autocross, but a lot of it was just like I would host these car cruises that we would go on, and it was always about like, who could take corners faster which hindsight probably wasn't the smartest thing to do but it was a blast in the time so that's kind of how that stuff started and kind of evolved
1: sure uh, it seems like the common denominator is uh, even in this case if it wasn't your own car it always almost always comes back to something honda related it's it's actually quite amazing how often that thread comes through with the guests that we have on this podcast
0: i was i was actually listening to your podcast with sheepy And it was going back and forth because he started in Hondas. And it's like, well, they're relatively cheap to fix. They're easy to make power. And, you know, when you can get them out of a junkyard for pretty cheap, what the hell?
1: Yeah, I, I mean we've we've actually just gone down the Honda path after years of of working on them and tuning them for others, uh, we ended up with a, an EF chassis Honda CRX, which is probably about the the lightest thing that still has the double A arm front suspension that had a, a built K twenty shoehorned into it, and uh, honestly, it's um it's probably one of the most fun cars I've ever pedaled around a racetrack, and relatively cheap to maintain although I'll also mention we've had a few expensive failures so you know it's got to all be done right that's what happens when you buy an existing project and sort of work through the things that you find along the way but again I digress. Coming out of this working on your own cars, mates, Hondas etc where did you sort of progress to from there?
0: I actually ended up going towards Subarus i had a bunch of friends that had subarus and they were always blowing up so we were pulling motors out and sending them out for rebuild. and then that kind of progressed and this was all like parallel of an old, a family friend watching me do this and he has all sorts of cars from 70s 80s time frame up to now and it just started out going all right well I'll put headers on this car and upgrade the brake system and do this that and the other thing to this and so slowly but surely, he trusted me more and more. And that kind of helped propel me into where I'm at today because that's who got me in contact with the guy that owns all the Vipers now. Like they talked, said, Who does your work? Blah, blah, blah. I came up and then I started doing that while I was in college.
1: Okay. So you sort of jump into founding and starting this business, Havoc Performance. Straight off the bat, or, or did you go, you mentioned sort of auto parts stores, but was, was there anything sort of else along the way in terms of uh, formal employment?
0: Well, so my original plan was I was going to go to and work for like Johnson & Johnson. I had an internship there and basically as soon as I graduated, they were going to have a job for me sort of situation. And when I got to like my senior year of college, I was like, you know, I could probably do cars as a, as a business. Like, ah, eh, let me try it because, like, I was still living at home. I had no risk. It's not like I had a family and kids or anything like that. So I really dove into the car thing and started really heavily pushing that. And that was around probably 2016, 2017. And that's when I bought the property, the rental property I own that has my shop at it, and then started to really push. And that's kind of how that all kind of progressed.
1: All right, let's just take a step back. The degree that you're doing in college, what, what specifically was that?
0: I got my business degree with a minor in marketing from Penn State University.
1: Okay, so that appealed to Johnson & Johnson. Makes, makes sense. You can see a, a potential link there. I, I'm really interested how relevant and important you think that degree has been in starting and running and building a, a performance-related business in the automotive industry. It has helped me in more ways than one. It's helped me probably a lot more on the
0: business side of things, just because, like, it gave me the accounting knowledge that I needed to know. It gave me a lot of the marketing knowledge that I kind of knew, but didn't know the specifics of it all. So that kind of helped me push the business in the direction that I was going. It helped me identify certain parts of the market. And that's why we're pushing into doing some parts and everything else. Because the one big thing that ironically enough, school taught me was like, it's not about selling a product. It's not about selling a service. It's about selling a fix to a problem. If you can fix someone else's problems, then everybody's happy and you'll be able to grow it and everything else. And that was like one of the big things one of my professors taught me in college. And that then helped me with sales and all that other jazz, because at the end of the day, like we manage these car collections, but We're really selling our service to maintain them so that they can go to their place, turn the key and leave. Whereas before it's hard to do that. Where do you find, you know, the time to get somebody that you can trust to go and do those things for you. And that was kind of what school pushed me towards. And then I was like, okay, I could really do a business doing this because you want to treat these cars like they're babies. And that was the other big thing was like, if you look at franchises and everything else, their cars aren't treated like they're kids. And in the performance world, I'm sure, as you know, like a lot of these guys pump their all their love into these things and they want them to be treated as such.
1: Yeah. Yeah. They become a, a little bit more personal and important than than just another form of transport for sure. Uh, that degree that you did, what are we talking here? Is this, is this three years, four years? It, it was a four-year degree. Okay. And looking back with, obviously, you've cherry picked a, a couple of key takeaways there that, you know, on face value, uh, probably could be learned much quicker than four years. I mean, not to detract from the, the degree process, what I'm interested in, if you had your time again, or you know, our, our listeners are considering, hey, do, do I go down this path? Don't I? Would you do it again? Or would you recommend a, another approach?
0: If I was to do it again, I would probably do like a two-year degree and then push forward after that. Not saying that the four-year degree wasn't worth it, But I learned most of what I needed in my two-year degree. And then because I learned all that, then it helped me. But the two-year degree would definitely be more recommended. But it's also nice to have that as a fallback plan if I was to ever need it.
1: Yeah, I guess, obviously, as a self-employed person running your own business, you can do whatever you choose to do. But if you did have that fallback of maybe Johnson & Johnson or another you know, major player in industry, they're going to be looking for certain criteria and, and a four-year degree. Maybe that ticks their boxes and gets you in front of the next candidate. You know, I, I think the takeaway here as well, which is really easy to overlook, is it's not just the difference between a two-year and a four-year degree. It is also the opportunity cost of those additional two years where you could have been starting and developing that business. And obviously, it's always easy to look back on that with the benefit of hindsight. Trying to make those decisions in the moment is a lot more difficult. All right, so you've come out of this four year degree, you've already got at least one customer, as I'm sort of picking up here, and you're looking after the car collection. Sounds like he's put you in touch with this other collector who's got an insane number of vipers, as I understand. You say 60 before when we were talking off, off air?
0: Yeah, he's got uh, 59
1: now. I am struggling to see why anyone would need 59 vipers, but uh, <laughs> that's just me. But
0: well, when I started with him, he had six. There's, there's actually a couple in Texas with 94 Vipers.
1: That's greedy. They do say everything's bigger in Texas. I guess that goes for the car collections as well. <laughs> All right, so you've then decided to basically take a a chance here and you purchased a property. So I mean, that that in itself is quite a a big leap of faith. I mean, most people, myself included, starting up business, you sort of tend to always uh, lease the the smallest premise that you can fit maybe a a, a lift and a couple of cars in and then curse and swear for the next three or four years why you didn't get something bigger because it's never big enough. That wasn't your experience by the sounds of it.
0: I was actually looking to rent some places. And like you're saying, that three, four car garage was like almost three grand a month. And me just graduating, having some clients and stuff, I was like three grand is a month before electric insurance and all that other fun jazz that goes along with it. So I always, rental properties always interested me. So I found a piece of commercial property that had a house on it. And I was like, all right, this is perfect. I got three acres of commercial property. There's a garage out back already. Yeah, it needs work. Like I could buy this, rent the house out. And then basically the rent for the house would cover, if not all of my expenses, to basically work out of the garage for free while I grow it. And
1: so your house hacked your way into a workshop essentially with someone else picking up the tab. Yep. Which
0: then gives me the opportunity to continue to grow and gives me a little bit better of a cash flow because I'm not paying rent. And, you know, the mortgage wasn't too bad. So it was like rent covered most of it, if not all my, my actual expenses for the property.
1: I'm guessing, though, n- not really knowing too much about the process in the US, that uh, that's going to require at least a, a, a reasonable deposit to. Go through with that purchase. I'm guessing you're also looking at starting a business. There's an outlay required for you know equipment, lifts, tools, etc. Or were you already set up with the basics of what you'd actually need to run that business?
0: I had a lot of the basics as far as tools and stuff goes, and then just doubling back a little bit that internship. I some of the weeks I ended up working hundred-hour weeks and just socked away as much money as I could, and so I used that money towards the down payment of the property, but. When I was already starting over there, I already had enough tools in my toolbox to do basically everything I was needing to do at the time. And the only big thing that I had to do was buy a lift. So, you know, I put that on a 0% credit card and put the lift in and then started working and just kept investing from there.
1: Okay. All right, let's dive into the the platform itself. So it sounds like you kind of grew up maybe with a bit of a slant towards JDM brands and then it swung back to to the Viper. What is it about the Viper that that really sort of ignited your passion and you decided that was the one to support?
0: Well, so growing up, um, even when I was young, my dad always loved the Viper. He was like his dream car, which in return was also my dream car. And in like, my freshman year of high school, I believe, he walked out to the garage and was like, Mike, my Viper's coming today. And I was like, no shit. There's no way a Viper's coming today. You're pulling my chain. And one showed up in a trailer. (laughs) So he bought his Viper then. And I started going to more and more car show stuff and car collection stuff. And you kind of just from hearing people complain about where they were taking their cars all through high school, you learned what the do's and don'ts were pretty quick. But growing up, like when I started working on cars, it was all of what me and my buddies could afford. So I didn't really, really file into the Viper until I got in with the Viper collector. And that's when, okay, well now I'm working on his collection just about a hundred percent of the time or 80% of the time. Like that's kind of what the focus became. And because I was working on him every day, that became the, oh, okay, now I know these things like the back of my hand. And then that's how the specialization of it all came.
1: That, that leads nicely into my next question, which is sort of the advantage of focusing on one single platform, albeit, as I understand it, five generations across the, the different years of that Viper. But a big advantage for you to to know that that platform that in- intimately i mean
0: i'm sure as you know anytime you know a platform it makes your life a hell of a lot easier when it comes to diag and tuning and doing anything and everything you want like at this point you could probably pick a bolt up off that car and i can probably tell you where it goes so like when people show up with things and their cars are half apart from other shops i can go okay well this is how this goes and I can put it all back together without a problem. But the focusing on it has been really nice because, because of we've been doing so much focusing on it. Like even my local dealership that I work with, they'll call me from time to time and say, hey, how do we do this to this Viper? We have one here. It's like, I'm not the master tech, but because I do it so much, I know more than most would on how to get these things fixed in the right way and the right contacts and who to call and who to get things done. So focusing on it and specializing in it has been awesome because at the end of the day, yes, it's just a pushrod motor. They have a lot of quirks, but a lot of people are also afraid to touch them. So it's like a niche. It's that easy niche market of, okay, there's cars out there that need to be maintained. Not a lot of people want to touch them. Even some dealerships have been turning them away I had this one customer who sa- who brought his car to a Dodge dealer and they said, yeah, we have a Dodge tech here. Um, we can get the car inspected for their state inspection. No problem. He brings the car in. They're like looking all around it, taking all these pictures, doing all this stuff. And they don't know how to open the hood <laughs> because the hood release is not inside the car on those cars. And he's like, I thought you had a Viper tech. Well, sure. They have a tech, but he was... Yeah, he was trained 20, 30 years ago and saw one Viper in his lifetime and doesn't remember.
1: I mean, the reality of this is, you know, we're, we're not beating up on these dealerships as well. You're, you're probably seeing one of these cars through the doors literally every day of the week, and they might see one every six months or maybe every couple of years. So, you know, it, it just comes with familiarity, but but it is worth mentioning that there there are advantages in it does also come down to your locality and the population base. I mean, coming from a small country in New Zealand, we've got 4.5 million odd people across the whole country and the city where I based my workshop had a population of about half a million. You know, if I'd wanted to focus on literally any single brand, I wouldn't have been putting food on the table, never mind paying staff. So you're kind of forced into this you know, jack of many skills or, uh, you know, you need to know all these platforms, but maybe the intense depth of knowledge of any single one is a little bit more limited because you're just not doing that. So, I mean, key advantage for you being based in the US, based where you are, you've got such a big number of these cars available around you. I'm I'm guessing that's how you can base the whole business around it. Yeah. And there's really only one other shop in the Northeast that uh, does Vipers
0: and the guy's much older now. Like I think he's in his eighties. So like, as far as me being the young in now, work is starting to flow my way because they're slowing down. They're not doing it as much. It seems, but like you said, you have to also do things to make sure you keep the lights on. And that's why we're, we do a lot of different things. It's not just Vipers, but 90% of the cars are Shopper Vipers.
1: Okay. Well, let's sort of get a, a bit of a sense of scale of where you are in this journey today. Uh, so Havoc Performance, what's the... Location, you've said northeast, but let me get dial in a little bit more specifically, and yeah, you know, what's the size of the facility, number of staff, etc. Okay,
0: so I am located in a small town of Bath, Pennsylvania. It's pretty close to Lehigh Valley Airport, so that's where I'm at now. I currently have it's about two thousand square foot is the current shop. I have a 2000 square foot building for just storage because none of my car customer cars sit outside. And then we're building right now another 2200 square foot shop on the property as well. So I have, and I have two employees. Once the new shop is up, I'll get another employee, and then we'll see where we're at from there and keep growing.
1: Okay. In terms of those employees, what are the what are the sort of positions of of those? Are, are, are you all physically working on the tools? Do you have customer service, or is is the sort of the customer service side of things? Managed between the the three of you.
0: So right now, I recently hired an old friend of mine who has been helping me with do a lot of this through the years. He's been doing more service writing and parts management, and kind of doing more inter or talking with the customers. And then my other full time guy is Colin. He's a was a master tech at Nissan, but had a ton of passion for the Viper. And I mean, like you said, some business owners listen to this, but like my biggest thing is finding guys with passion, because if you can find the passion, they'll want to work hard and you can continue to educate them and push them and they want to be involved because of that passion side of things. So... He grew up loving Vipers, was going to move to Texas and to go work on them. So I ended up teaching him a lot of things. But So he is a full-time tech. Him and I do a lot of the work together. I put him on some projects. I do some projects. And then Zach is handling some phone calls and emails, selling parts for us and handling a lot of the more of the service writing sort of thing. And then I bounce between everything, like I'm sure you know.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean one of the things that's been discussed before but again it's worth just diving into with your own experience is often someone will start a, a business and this could be any sort of hobby slash passion based business but we see this obviously in the automotive industry time and time again, they get involved because they're really passionate about spinning spanners or fabrication or tuning or a combination of those things and they start the business and then quickly find out maybe a year in that now in their 8 or 10 hour working day, whatever they're, they're doing, uh, they've only actually got maybe 3 or 4 hours in that day to actually do the part that they like and then the rest is quoting business, quoting work discussing jobs with customers, dealing with walk-ins and marketing and basically everything else that goes into a business and often that kind of ends up putting them off. I mean obviously that hasn't been the case for you in terms of being put off the trajectory but has that kind of resonated with you, Is is that similar to your experience and how have you dealt with it if so?
0: It definitely is. There's certain parts of the business that like, I'm sure, you know, and many other business owners know, like it's not always like the fun gravy that you get to do. You know, I like to do all of it. Like I love drenching on cars. I love doing the sales spot. But the big thing for me that's always been my thing is like, I like to solve problems and I love to solve problems that other people can't figure out. So, as long as I can continue to do that, that's been like my big focus, and that keeps me happy going through day to day. So, even if it's not, you know, let's say I didn't wrench all day, but I helped three or four people get things fixed remotely, like, okay, I'm ecstatic about that. So, it's a nice balance of as I hired guys, I hired guys that can do things in place of what I need to be doing. So, like, on days that I don't want to deal with customers, or if I don't want to deal with emails, I can have You know, Zach, the one that I've been teaching to do service writing, he can handle that and I can go wrench for the day and then I'll follow up with all my stuff the following day.
1: Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. If my
0: body hurts, I can have Colin do more wrenching that day and me go do more office stuff. So it's nice because I like to do so many different things instead of doing the same thing every day.
1: Yeah, it keeps it fresh and interesting. In terms of the services you're offering, obviously, there's a mechanical element. You've you've talked about sort of collection management, I guess we'd call that. And, and I want to dive into that. But, you know, give us the sort of the high level view of the overall services that you are offering to customers.
0: So the high level view is we've created a business that you can drop your car off and basically anything and everything you want done. If you need body work done, I've got a body shop I work with, so I handle all of that. If you want your windows tinted or your paint corrected and ceramic coats done, I've got guys that come in and do that for me. Like I wanted to make it so it was kind of like a blanket of: we take your car and whatever you need done, we'll make sure that it gets done. But you know, like we, like you talked about before, we do car collection management, so that was that's anywhere from. You know, I've got guys that literally hand me the keys that are building and say, I want everything cleaned, maintained and running anytime I want to come here. And then I've got other guys that say, Hey, I've got all these cars. Let's just start a rotation of things. I'll drop one off. And each time I drop one off or each time you fix something, I'll drop a new one off. So like I started to do some of that stuff. And then now even it's turned into some guys will call me and say, Hey, I'm going to sell my car. And then now it's moving into, all right, well, I've got now the connections of people that want these cars, let me reach out to them and started selling cars that way or consigning cars that way.
1: I'm assuming from a business standpoint, you're able to, to put a commission on those sales. So you're actually making something out of the process as well, making it worth your while.
0: Yes. It's still super low because I don't do it a ton, but
1: but a worthy addition to the rest of the business. And then I guess we get into the the more interesting element from my perspective is the the performance upgrades and modifications. The, the Viper obviously is known as a performance car, more so of the later generations. And you know, the, there's plenty that are running twin turbos or supercharges, and you know, thousand plus horsepower is is not unattainable. So. Yeah, how did you get into that side of the Viper business?
0: So actually, a good friend of mine was just hanging out with me a lot and started to love the Viper. He bought one. It was an R-Title car, so he got it for a better price than the rest. And he's like, Mike, I want to do heads and cam to my car. So I call up a good friend of mine who used to be a master tech and said, hey, can you help me figure this out? We want to do ported heads, cam setup, and everything else he said, yeah, on one condition, I want you to do my car. I want to do my car first. So we pulled his car in, which he has a Gen 2 Viper. And we ended up working with some machine shops about doing our custom ported heads. And we created a custom cam between the three of us and kind of built like a whole package behind that. And his car has been like our shop car. So we've done, you know, now it has an AEM it has nitrous and all sorts of silly things. But that's kind of how it started into the performance world. So I can thank a lot of that to my buddy, Kyle, because he was like, hey, let's do this. Like I've got the car, let's make this happen.
1: In terms of developing that package there, you sort of mentioned a a custom cam. And I mean, I've done hidden cam packages on on a number of different platforms. And generally sort of our go-to would be our, our local camshaft supplier and you know, for a popular platform, they're, they're going to have maybe four or maybe eight grinds of cam available. So we can kind of select something that's going to suit the target uh, that we're trying to achieve. You know, That's the usual sort of direction we go to. Custom, is this because nothing on the market really suited your requirements or is it such a niche product that there weren't really enough players in the market already doing off-the-shelf cams?
0: There are players doing off-the-shelf cams. I just wanted to do something more... Along the lines of like our own, because we wanted something that was super streetable, yet as radical as we could kind of get to accommodate and kind of go with what our heads were going to be doing. By custom, we did a different design than what was just on the shelf at CompCam. And we changed some of the numbers around and it was able to net us more power than most of the guys were putting down as it was so it was like we like the sound we like the power let's kind of keep on with this we're going to probably change some things in the years to come just to see what else happens but that was kind of how the custom aspect of it happened
1: okay there's quite a bit of toing and froing with some of these cam designs or package designs like this to kind of get it to actually give the results that that you want. So I'm, I'm interested, like, how many iterations did you go through? What was the validation process to make sure that it was giving what you expected?
0: The one machine shop we were working with at the time when we were discussing the cam profiles, they were building race motors for years. So we went with a lot of what they recommended, plus we were able to, based on like some of the forum stuff, going off of what stock cams were, we went with what his kind of recommendation was with some slight modification and then kind of just took that and ran with it. Right now, like I said before, we're working on some other packages and building even more power. Now we're doing some R&D and we're going to be throwing some crazy cams and things to see what they'll put down and see what kind of drivability would be like. But the original suggestion was kind of what that guy of, that built the race motors back in the day was offering to us and kind of took that and ran with it.
1: Well, if it works out properly the first time around, you're you're very fortunate. It hasn't been my experience too many times, but it's always refreshing when it does happen. All right, same question essentially for for the head porting. This is a reasonably specialized skill set. and it's not a case of, of just bigger is better, which I think a lot of people kind of go down that path and, and regret the results afterwards. So you know, I'm guessing you're talking about developing a CNC porting profile for the heads or is this still all hand ported? How did the process get developed?
0: So again, it was a, that original machine shop was doing the porting for us at the time. We since now have been kind of as we've been growing, we've been doing it more of ourselves sort of situation. But the Gen 2 and 3, there's too much core shift in the heads for you to develop a CNC program, so they still have to be hand ported. And like you said, not always larger is better. You know, it's about how the air flows and the height of the intake, but runner and all that other fun jazz kind of goes into it. So our tuner is also used to port heads for. A living so he's now doing some of he's doing more of our port work as we're moving forward with this and based on all of our flow bench numbers it's working out pretty well because we're able to do some things that the other shops didn't do to give you that more velocity into the intakes
1: okay so I mean I know across the generations of Viper engine specs have varied slightly and, and the power is, is significantly varied. I, I think the first generation, at least as I saw, is around about the 400 horsepower mark and the last generation, depending I guess on the spec, was was up north of 600, maybe 640 horsepower. So big variation there. My question is I guess if we've got a naturally aspirated otherwise stock Viper of your chosen generation, could you give us sort of an idea of what this hidden cam package is going to pick up in terms of performance, power and torque gains?
0: So on the Gen 2 cars, they're going from the Gen 2 is 450 horse to crank, which ended up being like 380 on most dynos-ish, so you know how that works, to now we're doing 555 to the wheels. So you're going from 450 crank or 380 at the wheels to 555 at the crank or at the wheels. So it's picking up, what is it, like 180 horse?
1: Yeah, that's not a small improvement.
0: It's not a small improvement, but that's with headers, tuning, the heads are ported polished, larger valves, different rockers, all that fun jazz to kind of accommodate all that. But it really brings it into like the 21st century because when you're going from a car from 96 that had 450 to, you know, probably at the crank, probably around 620 at the crank. That's like a street car for most things. It's, we'll be able to keep up.
1: Yeah, I'm guessing as well. Yeah, you know, on face value, you're talking about a V10 engine, and we'll get maybe a bit more into the engine as well of eight liters plus in capacity, pr- producing 450 horsepower. I mean, let's be honest; it's not doing a great job of turning gasoline into energy, is it?
0: No, it is not especially when you compare it to, you know, you look at some of those Subarus or like all that jazz, what they can kind of put out and as far as that goes. But the, the big thing with the Viper motors was they are like nine and a half to one from the factory compression ratio wise, which like really kills it as far as like the power goes. So you have to raise that as time goes on to keep up. But at nine and a half to one you could take that thing to the track beat its ass off all day and you're not going to blow the thing up and that was kind of the design that's why a lot of guys put superchargers on them because nine and a half to one compression ratio with a supercharger you're safe
1: yeah i mean particularly if you're going to run a good fuel maybe maybe even an ethanol blend nine and a half to one's a a pretty good starting point for for forced induction Unless you're going absolutely wild is the Detune nature of that large capacity V10 engine. Why you can see such a, a massive improvement with that head cam package. Obviously, as you mentioned, tuning headers, exhaust, etc., as well. So not just the head and cams.
0: Yeah, there is definitely a big part of that because the compression is raised when you go heads and cam. Just the big problem with them is they're flat top pistons, so you can't really shove a valve down in there. As- far as you would like to really go nuts with it. And that's where we're trying to get a little bit more creative with some things to see what kind of power we can put out, but we'll see what happens in the next couple of months with that one.
1: Just on that note, you, you've said that with your head and cam package, you're raising the compression, but obviously not touching the bottom end. So safe to assume there you're you're shaving material off the cylinder head to reduce the combustion chamber volume to get that bump in compression ratio?
0: Yeah, the between the gaskets and the heads it bumps the compression ratio up it should be around 10.5 to 1 or 10 to 1 so after all that's where you really get your benefit.
1: Sure now that base engine I mean I guess the detractors of the Viper will happily point out that it's actually a truck engine and I mean I don't have a lot of background on this I see you smiling so I'm, I'm sure you've got some some commentary to add to this is it a truck engine does that even matter is that a downside or is it maybe got some positives as well
0: So yes, Dodge had the V10 engine in their trucks. When they wanted to develop the Viper, they took like a basic V10 design and basically went to Lamborghini. Dick Winkles flew out to Lamborghini at the time and said, we want to develop a V10 motor. We need to know how to do it with an aluminum block and what we need to change and what we need to make better because aluminum blocks, as you know, are very different than cast and all their V10s were cast at the time. So they took some parts of the design from that motor and moved it over to the Viper. But a lot of things did change in the process. So like the head design is a little bit different. The block design is a little bit different. So yes, the initial idea was thought up from a V10 truck motor, but at the end of the day, it's very, very different. You wouldn't be able to do the same things and if you looked at even some of the same gaskets and stuff they'll all be very different
1: okay so similarities but still uh, essentially a different design entirely yes I just wanted to take a moment out of our interview with Mike here and talk about a course package that I think you'll really enjoy and that is our engine building starter package. This package includes a range of courses that's essentially going to give you all of the information you need to start building your own quality, reliable performance engines at home and I know that this is a skill set, a lot of enthusiasts think that they can't learn, maybe it's a little bit beyond them, the reality is that anyone with a little bit of patience and an eye for detail can absolutely learn these skills, it's really no issue. This package starts with our Engine Building Fundamentals course which is a course that teaches you about the inner workings of your engine and it doesn't matter what type of engine you're personally interested in, maybe it's a pushrod V8 or maybe it's a quad cam V12 or anything in between, you'll learn about the clearances inside the engine how we choose the clearances, how we may need to modify them as we modify the engine to make more power and rev higher than factory. You'll learn about the different machining operations that are required on our parts and how we can correctly work with a quality engine machinist to get the best results possible. You'll also learn about the tools that will be required for building your own engines. Next we move into our practical engine building course which builds on the knowledge taught in our engine building fundamentals course. Uh, This presents a simple step by step process, in this case a 10 step process you can apply to building your own engines. It is generic so again doesn't matter what type of engine you're personally interested in, this 10 step process is 100% applicable. And we know for the average enthusiast it can be a little bit concerning when we get all of our parts back from the machinist knowing what to do first and what order to progress in, that 10 step process makes this super easy. It's going to ensure that you get to the end, you've got a properly built engine, you're going to have the confidence that all of the parts, clearances and tolerances inside that engine are exactly what they should be so that when it comes time to turn the key for the first time, the engine's going to start, it's going to run exactly as it should delivering great power, great torque and most importantly great reliability. Once you've gone through the body of the course we also include a library of worked examples where you can watch that 10 step process being applied from start to finish on a real engine building job. We also are including our how to degree a cam course. This is one of the more common modifications we'll make when building a performance engine, swapping out the factory cam or cam shafts for something that is a little bit more aggressive but getting the results out of any cam upgrade does rely on getting the cam degreed or dialled in correctly to the manufacturer's specifications. This course is perfect if you want to learn how to do this. Again it's generic, it doesn't matter whether you're dealing with a pushrod V8 or a quad cam V12 or anything in between. There's also a nice six step process you can apply when it comes to degreeing your own cam. This package also includes 24 months of gold membership which gives you access to our private members only forum. This is the best place to get reliable answers to your specific questions. You'll also get access to our fortnightly members only webinars where we choose a topic and dive deep into that topic for around about an hour. You can also get access to our back catalogue of these webinars. We've got over 300 hours of content in that back catalogue already. It is an absolute one. Usual package price for this is 299 US dollars. You can use the coupon code HAVOC25, that is H-A-V-I-K, Five, that'll get you 25% off, making that package just $224.25. Now, as usual with all of our courses, we also offer a 60 day no questions asked money back guarantee. So if you purchase and decide for any reason it wasn't quite what you expected, let us know. We'll give you a full refund of the purchase price. Let's get back to our interview now. And one of the, the oddities and the pun here is, is intended with the Viper V10, is that it is what's referred to as an odd fire engine. Now that's a term that's maybe a little tricky to explain without the benefits of, of maybe a couple of diagrams, but can you do your best to explain what odd fire means and why the cylinder angle affects this? The V angle, I'm, I'm sorry, I should say.
0: Without those diagrams, I don't know if I would be able to explain it well enough and not sound like an idiot trying to explain it.
1: Well let's maybe break it down. In in simple terms, what it means is that we're not getting a piston reaching top dead center on the compression stroke at an even number of crankshaft degrees. So the the point in the in the engine cycle where each cylinder fires, the angle is going to be different. Whereas in a conventional engine, odd fire is is not completely unusual but definitely even fire is is way more common and so you're going to have uh, an even number of crankshaft degrees between each firing uh, event that's occurring. The reason I raise this is because of two things. First of all, I know a lot of people probably haven't heard of Oddfire and and wouldn't have given any appreciation to what this means. And secondly is I do have a a personal anecdote of of coming across this which I thought was worth bringing up, my one and only foray into the the Viper platform. But uh, you, you need an engine management system that has actually got the ability to To run odd fire, and you can enter the the basically the number of degrees between between each firing event. Because if you don't do that, if you can't, you don't have the ability to do that. There's no way to run one of these engines properly. Correct.
0: Correct. And that's why you are the teacher because you explain that a (laughs) hell of a lot better than I can. But yeah, without without the you need special computers to do it because of the odd firing and the cam crank signals and everything else are special in those cars. And that's why you can use Motex on them. They're Compatible, you can use things like Mtron on them, they're compatible. The AEM Infinities were compatible and able to do it as well but you can't just throw like any ECU on it and expect it to do what you need to do because it is so special and
1: odd in that sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a learning curve for people that uh, find themselves dealing with an odd fire engine. I'll bring up the situation because this is quite unique. I'd never seen it before and and I haven't seen it since and and maybe mentioning this might help some people out there faced with, with the same situation. I think there was another... Idiosyncrasy with this particular engine is that it was odd fire. It must have also been waste spark, which is unusual. But anyway, I'll get into this. It, it was a, a, as I remember, a first generation Viper, and it had been fitted with a supercharger kit, and it was is also wired up with a Motec M800, and the whole thing was a bit of a, a bit of a combination, which really wasn't ideal. The the M800 isn't really well designed to run a a 10 cylinder engine but yes it it can do it. Anyway it came to me because the owner who had spent a a huge amount of money on this wasn't super impressed with the power that it was making and the first thing we did was run it up on our dyno and agree wholeheartedly with him. I think it was making about 400 horse at the wheels which was dismal uh, given the what it was, and uh, again, trying to keep the the long story relatively short. What I actually ended up finding was, uh, if you tried to time the the engine, set the base ignition time, which is one of our first and most important things when we tune an engine. Basically, that process is using a timing light to ensure that the the timing numbers you've got on the laptop screen match the physical timing the engine is seeing. So, because again, I'm stretching my memory, but I think it was waste spark. It would only make sense for this example, clipped the uh, timing light onto the ignition lead for number one cylinder and when you're watching the the timing on the front crank pulley, it was jumping backwards and forwards because of this odd fire. So there was a, there was a angle between the two, I can't remember off the top of my head, sorry, maybe it was 10 or 12 degrees. But again, long story short, basically it had been timed up off the wrong firing angle and that in turn meant that actually the entire timing map was retarded by the, the odd fire angle. Again I, I don't remember what that was, let's call it 12 degrees. So it had a super conservative timing map in it in reality. And when I corrected that, basically that one change I think it picked up sort of 200 horsepower at the wheels and you know, it was a completely different animal. So I just yeah, I wanted to bring up that little anecdote because it, it is an unusual, unusual situation many will never find themselves in.
0: Things like that have actually happened with us. We've gotten cars back and we looked at the tunes and we go, what the hell were they even thinking? And you look at like, specifically, it sounds like you were working on a Gen 1 and those can be a little bit more of a nightmare to deal with because... The factory PCMs, you couldn't tune, you couldn't do much with them. They were barely smart enough to run the damn things. And then the issues with the wasted spark and anytime you upgraded the injectors, some guys would use high impedance versus low impedance. And then people would put different boxes in and it's a whole freaking mess in itself. So, but it sounds like you did the right thing and got it figured out the right way and made it happen.
1: Worth mentioning again that this would not be an issue you would see with a direct spark coil on plug style because number one cylinder, which is the one we're interested in, is firing in the place it's firing on. It was just the waste spark and the fact that we were seeing that timing in essentially two different positions and yeah, that, that I guess generally relates to that Gen 1. So let's move on because we're talking about engine management a little bit here. I mean this this is really sort of one of the key elements with getting the the results out of a head and cam package and all of the other upgrades. We haven't even dived into forced induction which I want to do shortly. But what were the options? What are the options? Are the later, later vehicles, you know, obviously reflashing of the factory engine management system has become the go-to, particularly for basic modifications. It's it's usually a very cheap and cost-effective way of getting more performance. Is that viable on the Viper platform? Is it only related to specific generations or is standalone the only way to go? So when it comes to Gen 1s, so 92
0: to 95, standalone is really the only way to go. If you're working on things from like 96 to basically 2017, you can use HP tuners, especially if you're only doing like heads cam stuff. There's also a company prefix that can do some ECU flashing on Gen 5 stuff. And they basically, they know what they're doing. They've been doing it forever. They've got Dick Winkles, who is the engineer at the Viper motor working there doing their tuning. So they can do that. But a lot of the times we lean towards HP tuners. SCT can also do it, but they haven't really updated anything in a long time. So you get more, there's more things to work with in HP tuners versus what SCT. But if you look at it in comparison to like NLS HP tuners software, it's totally different. There's not as nearly as many parameters because they haven't invested the time in it to give it everything you really really want. You can tune things, definitely make it better, but it's still not a perfect situation.
1: Yeah, I think probably for those coming into this without with experience reflashing factory engine management systems, the reality is that there's there's likely to be hundreds. Uh, most likely thousands of different parameters and tables inside every factory engine management system. Obviously, more as they get more, uh, more modern and complicated. And the platform we're using, let's use HP Tuners here, just because you've brought that up. Basically, when you download that raw binary file out of the ECU, it's useless to us. It's just a bunch of numbers that that's meaningless. And what we need to do is have a what's called a definition which basically says uh, you've got a map at this address, it's this size, here are the axes, here are the scaling values to apply to these raw hexadecimal values to turn them into something that that we can see as you know, a, a timing map or a talk request map or whatever that may be. And without that, we've got no way of displaying these tables in a way that we as tuners can understand and, and then process and modify So the upshot of this though is that that's quite a lot of work to reverse engineer the factory binary file and and find these maps and then validate that they are in fact what what we think they are. That's what HP tuners do which is why we pay the money for a commercial system so we don't have to do that. But some systems... Yo, popular platforms are going to have a lot more work done in the background because there's thousands of people reflashing them so GM for example, that the LS platform, the Gen 5 platform, there's so much work done to make sure that those definitions are thorough and you can essentially do whatever you want on less well supported platforms and I'm guessing here I haven't tried myself what you're saying, the Viper sounds like it fits into that. They've kind of done the bare minimum so if you want to go further maybe adding forced induction is it safe to assume that that would not be a smart move using the reflash platform
0: so you can use the reflash platform specifically on two and threes when you get up to like the gen fives they have torque limiting tables that are very very hard to overcome there's only like one company in the country that i know of that got past some of the torque limiting tables and just for people that don't know what torque limiting table is so on the like the gen 5 you go for forced induction on hp tuners you can tune it wide open throttle as soon as like the map sensor sees boost it starts to limit the torque because it's trying to save the car so then it's starting to close the throttle flaps and that's exactly what was happening on this supercharged gen 5 we were doing company said yeah we can tune it no problem no problem here's the kit put it on, we'll get it done. And no matter what we tried and did, anytime you went wide open throttle, you'd watch those throttle flaps close as soon as it started to see boost.
1: It's a depressing situation when you just know there's power to be had there and you're watching the throttles close.
0: Well, the, the crappy part was, was like they're like, oh, it's a boost leak. It's a boost leak. And I'm like, I'm watching the throttle position go from 100% to 88%, 85%. There's no way. It's bleeding boost off right through there. So that was a whole nother thing in itself. But you can, on the Gen 3 car specifically, we do a lot of, um, you put an OEM SRT4 map sensor on it and you can adjust the scaling. You don't get a great table to work with, but it's more than enough for you to add a supercharger to it and be able to stay on the stock VCM. After like probably about 800 horse, it gets sketchy.
1: Sure. In terms of then aftermarket support, in terms of standalone ECUs, again across the generations there's undoubtedly going to be uh, some complexities chucked in there. The Gen 1 that I had a very brief dealing with, as I mentioned, Motec M800, which very much, even in today's form, it's it's pretty basic ECU in that it doesn't have a lot of can integration with the rest of the car's electronics, there's not a lot of control the tuner's got over that but that's fine because the, the car was pretty simple back then. Uh, I'm, I'm going out on a limb without really knowing that the Gen 5 almost certainly is going to have uh, can bus communication with, with a number of other modules so getting the engine to run on a standalone might be fine but getting the car to actually perform like it did stock only with more power, a little bit more complex so talk us through some of those considerations.
0: So the older stuff like the Gen 1 2s 3s there's not much there and even the things that are there you're still using you're still keeping the factory PCM for the gauges and the security system and all that jazz the standalones are acting more as like a uh, they get rid of the all the engine management out of the factory PCM and it's doing it by itself. So like that's makes it nice in that sense when you get up to the Gen 5s you can use the Motec And it helps control some of that stuff through the CAN bus, but there's modules for freaking everything. So as long as you still get those modules to communicate and program the VIN correctly, everything should be pretty smooth sailing once you get that tune file situated. But it's also a lot more of a pain in the ass in comparison to like just doing the engine management side of things.
1: Sure. So it sounds like those other systems you're talking about there for the earlier cars are are kind of almost installed in a piggyback format where the the injection and the ignition are taken out of the factory ECU and controlled by the standalone but a lot of signals are shared so maybe that factory PCM still gets uh, engine RPM and engine position input so it can relate that to a TACO output on the dash, is that sort of what I'm, I'm picking up there? Exactly. Okay but then when we go Gen 5, now you're talking a dedicated standalone and again for those who, who aren't aware of that Motec system. I'm assuming here you're talking about working with a developer who's used M1 build to actually make a firmware package specific to the Gen 5. Correct. So when we
0: did that Gen 5 with the supercharger on it and put Motec on it, uh, we were working with John Reed Racing at the time. He's a pretty big Motech guy in the US. And he gave us like a base file that was going to communicate with the rest of the modules on the car, and then we really just had to adjust the tuning from there. So it was nice to be able to already have a base file.
1: Yeah, uh, for those who want to learn a little bit more as well, we've actually had John Reed on the podcast in a previous episode. So we'll uh, we'll link to that episode in the show notes. Uh, he's a he's a really smart guy, and, and he does do some some pretty amazing work with the Canbus decoding and, and reverse engineering i mean I, I guess after just singing his praises did it work like it, you expected or were there were the hiccups <laughs> that came along the way it worked as expected
0: there were a couple hiccups and some things like just a little bit of a learning curve my tuner hasn't touched motec in a while and they updated some things so like getting the VIN program pr- properly was a little bit more of a pain in the ass than it should have been, but now it's pretty smooth sailing.
1: All right. You've mentioned a couple of times now your tuner. So uh, are you bringing this in-house or or is this outworked to uh, another tuning workshop?
0: So he is basically consulting for me. So he comes in and does all our tuning and then the dino's at a buddy of mine's house that we've been using so if we bring the cars up to his place we dyno them there at least until i can build a bigger shop and get all that stuff situated and get a dyno in-house and then we can really do it that way but he's got all the experience as far as tuning goes so i'm going to continue to keep the professional doing his thing
1: yeah that makes a lot of sense i mean i guess it's a the old situation if it isn't broken don't fix it The flip side of that and it sounds like this is what you're looking at doing though, that there is a benefit and uh, a perceived value I guess in bringing bringing these external elements in house and having a little bit more control over them. Uh, Also the benefit of being able to do everything under the one roof is an advantage, is that sort of what you're aiming for?
0: Yeah, because it's a lot nicer if if things were to break on the dyno. At least it's on my dyno, and it's already there where all my tools are. Whereas, like right now, I gotta drive the car trailer the car up to the dyno. Now, if it breaks, then I gotta bring it home. So that's a little bit more of a pain in the ass. But dynos also aren't that cheap. So
1: <laughs> no, no, no. There's a there's a definite expense, and I mean the other element that. I think super easy to overlook and I'm sure you're all over the, the top of this one, is that a lot of people I know when they start shopping for dynos, they're just shopping on the basis of the, the cost of the dyno alone. And yeah that that's a, that's a big expense. What's easy to overlook is if you want to do this properly and I mean plenty of people will just stick the dyno in a roller door and put the roller door up when they want to run the car but if you actually want to build a, a facility and, and I, I think some states maybe require this uh, for for health and safety, noise regulations etc, actually building a a dedicated dyno cell, often the cost of that cell is equal to or more than the cost of the dyno and and that's quite a bit of pill to swallow if you don't realise what you're actually getting yourself in for.
0: Yeah, and then you're into a dyno and a dyno cell for
1: more than what my new building cost. Yeah, fun times ahead, no doubt. <laughs> Let's just come back to the Viper engine. I mean, you've, you've talked at this stage about some of the cam and head upgrades. I'm interested in terms of the bottom end because one of the, the downsides, I guess, with a, a V10 engine is by definition, now you've got 10 cylinders and any upgrades you're looking at in terms of uh, piston and rod packages, that necessitates a little bit of additional cost. So is the bottom end, where are the weak points in it, I guess? And at what point does it need to to look at upgrades like that?
0: So if we're talking Gen 2, so 96 to 02, the early model Gen 2s all had forged bottom ends. So there was really no problem with that. You could do a thousand horse and not be blowing shit up just because it was forged that way. The later model gen twos so 2002 some mid-year 99 cars may have had this block they were cast pistons and they went to a little bit of a different design for the cams they called them the cream puff motors because of emissions and everything else they had to meet so they switched the design up a little bit and they put cast pistons in them some guys say you know, at seven, horse or at like seven hundred horse, you have to really start worrying about the pistons. I've got two customers that have one's one's a head and cam and sprays the car with nitrous that did seven fifty to the wheels with a two hundred shot direct port nitrous kit. And knock on wood, fingers crossed, he hasn't blown it up yet. I've got another guy that has it's also a cream puff bottom end with our heads cam, but a twin turbo car, and he's doing a little over eight hundred wheel and Knock on wood, bottom end is still okay.
1: It's interesting you mentioned that because this is probably one of the more common questions you see asked on any platform is, you know, what is the the bottom end good for in terms of power? And I, I think it's it's often really hard to get a consensus opinion on on where the line gets drawn, particularly with piston life, because in my my view, so much of that also comes down to how the engine has been tuned. You know, if you've got a, a factory cast piston, it's going to probably be very intolerant of of almost any detonation. So, if you've got a tune that's right on the edge, a forged piston will probably probably live through it, but a, a cast piston you could quickly break. And likewise, you know, even with the likes of rod strength, really looking at cylinder pressures in in terms of their effect on the rod, and it's possible to have two engines that. Are making the same power but by careful manipulation of the torque curve and reducing that peak torque value to keep it under control, uh, you can hold the bottom end together and keep the factory rods and pistons happy. So I find it at least difficult to say, yeah this is the line in the sand, this power level, go one more horsepower beyond this and uh, you're toast. And the other element, I guess, is also application. I mean, there's there's dyno queens, and then there's cars that are actually driven hard. Uh, particularly, road racing is probably the trickiest because the cars is getting hammered lap after lap, sort of time after time. Does that sort of again match your your experience?
0: Yeah, I mean, the, a lot of it comes down to how spicy the tune is, or how not spicy the tune is. The fuel, like, there's a lot of things that go into it. It's not just it's not just that one thing. So. It's hard to say for sure, but, you know, there's limits of everything, right? So people tell you like a safe limit, you know, on that cream puff motor, you know, you'd probably be around 700 and you'd probably still be okay. But after that, you'd probably still be on a little bit more of a borrowed time situation, but it also depends on, hey, how hot is it out that day? The other crappy part is like the stock PCMs don't have knock sensors.
1: Not a lot of technology in there compared to modern standards it's 100 degrees out, you don't have great fuel in the car,
0: well, that 700 horsepower, if it wasn't detuned and doesn't detect knock, there's going to be some problems.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of this comes down to a, a bit of common sense and while a big dyno number is always great for bragging rights, the reality is once you're sort of up at that seven or 800 wheel horsepower mark, most drivers probably aren't going to tell the difference of 15 or 20 horsepower and if that 15 or 20 horsepower is the difference between a, a tune that's like walking that that razor's edge of reliability or one that's a little bit more conservative yeah i'm going to take that conservative tune any day of the week
0: yeah and i feel the same way there's you never want to walk that line especially as a shop owner right like i don't want to put something out yeah it got 5 more horsepower but it's going to blow up in 30 miles versus you detune it a little bit you get more livability out of it
1: yeah definitely yeah I, and I think application and and customer expectation really comes into this as well I mean this is really separate for from what you're doing, but I, I will give one one example I had a customer many years ago with a, a mitsubishi evo nine so' about as far removed from a viper as we can get he had the one intention of of trying For the stock block world record on the drag strip with his Evo 9. And I I can't honestly remember, it might have been in the the low 9s at the time and uh, I think we, we decided probably we needed around about 700 wheel horsepower to do that which is a very big stretch on the stock block. And we had that conversation with him so his expectations were aligned with the potential outcome like, hey, I don't recommend doing this. We are in a situation where you are facing the potential for complete engine destruction where there will not be a single item, probably including your turbocharger, that will be recoverable from the car. Are you prepared for the financial ramifications if that worst case scenario occurs? If not, we're not going down this path. And I think being really clear like that, I mean don't get me wrong, if the thing did implode, he's probably still not going to be stoked but at least he can't sort of come and say, hey, well I never knew that this was a possibility. Well yeah, I mean you're trying to break a world record, You're, you're moving into uncharted territory Shit goes wrong. I'm sorry, you know this isn't, this isn't a Toyota Yaris, it's not your daily driver. Anyway, let's move on here. Um, one of the other elements with the, the V-10 engine being that it is an alloy block, Is there a point where the reliability of that alloy block becomes questionable, or are you sort of so far into the, the four figures that it's not really a, a, a consideration?
0: I don't know. I'm sure you've probably heard of Calvo Motorsports. They're kind of the guys that are paving the way as far as blowing blocks up. (laughs) It's a great thing to be known as an industry leader in. Well, I don't want to say they're the industry leader in that, but they're developing like a CNC block because it seems like after their 2,500 horsepower kit, the stock blocks aren't handling it. And I don't know what their kind of science is behind it for that stuff, but it seems like they're Gen 5s. I think they're still using stock blocks. They might be sleeved at that point but they're getting away with it at like 2000 horse. So, and I know like their base packages, even at your 12, 13, even 1500 horse, I don't think they're changing the blocks out. They should just all be factory blocks for the most part.
1: I mean, I guess that also comes down to you get enough data points from a company like them where they know, Hey, look, we've, we've been fine up to 2000, 2200. We've now seen, you know, let's say, five failures at or about the 2,500 horsepower mark. Well, clearly, okay, yeah, there's something going on there. And again, we're so far out of the realms of what's necessary or or sensible for a streetcar that it probably doesn't matter. But you know, they're, they're probably no different to the territory that the guys at the cutting edge of the R thirty five GTR platform, the Lamborghini Hurricane, Audi R eight platform, and all of those, you know, have got to that point where, okay, no, the factory cast block is is now junk. We're gonna have to go bill it. So, yeah, that, that makes sense. Probably I'm going to guess maybe a few less takers in the in the Viper market for billet blocks. But I guess if they're developing them, they've seen enough of a market there.
0: Yeah, they're the name of, of the game when it comes to twin turbo Dodge Gen 5 Vipers. Like the stuff they're doing is nuts. When more power to them, it's awesome what they're doing.
1: I mean, that brings me to the next point in terms of power upgrades. So forced induction, superchargers and turbochargers, obviously, as we've just mentioned, you know, 2,000, 2,500 horsepower is, is attainable if you've got the financial resources to achieve that. But um, I mean, your experience, is, is twin turbo or a supercharger a combination that you consider for a highly modified streetcar? And what are the the complexities, I guess, involved in that? I mean, on face value, it looks like a fairly tight packaging exercise to me.
0: Yeah, it's not. Uh, they're not terrible to do. They can definitely handle them. It's honestly a pretty solid build once you get that far into it like we're doing a gen 3 so the it's an 04 to 06 car right now that is going to get twin turbos it had a motor build because it had some motor issues as it was and the issue that we're going to come down to is the guy wants to run pump gas so like you only have, you have an octane limit on 93 like there's only so much power you can put down Um, you know, if I, if we run e 85 or even like a solid race fuel in it, he'd be able to do 13, 14, probably even 1500 wheel on the build that we're doing, just depending on how spicy you want to go with the timing and how safe you want to make it. But because he's going to run 93, that's going to be the, the big, your octane limit is going to be his problem on that car. But it's honestly, they're not terrible to do. There's just no many people out there that like make a kit that isn't. Like kind of janky. So that's where my customer came to me and was like, can we build one for cheaper than X and X and X? Then... If we can, then I'm in. I was like, all right, well, let me do some digging. And I was like, shouldn't be a problem. So I have a good friend that does all our fabricating. Um, so he's he's fabricating us some manifolds right now for it. And then we'll work on finishing getting the motor in and redoing the fuel system, put that on, and then get it on the dyno.
1: Developing something at that level as a, as a one-off, it seems to me that particularly given your laser focus on the Viper platform, it, it would make sense to kind of Make that something that was jigged and replicatable for future customers. Obviously when you do that, the development of that first kit, when you have to make jigs so that it is repeatable, there's more time investment and hence money that goes into to that. But then in the future you can rock out sort of 10 of these kits or, or whatever it may be and the, the unit price for each of those kits kind of therefore comes down. Don't see enough of a market to make that viable for you.
0: It's something we're definitely working on, something that I would like to put together some kits for, because between the standalone stuff that we're trying to do and get going and building kits for that, and then as we do some more of these turbo kits and everything else, once we get that situated, we'll end up building a kit that we can sell as well.
1: All right, let's move on a little bit. And I I know that you also have done a a little bit of development on producing parts for some of these carts, and uh, I'm interested in diving into that. Uh, just a, a general scroll of your Instagram showed a, at least a couple of items of interest. I think you've got a, a water pump there for the Gen 2 and you've also got uh, a fuel pressure regulator, I believe, for the the Gen 1. So uh, tell, tell us how those parts sort of came to, to be in existence. So
0: like the Gen 1s, they have pretty bad fuel pressure regulator issues. So we were able to source and kind of put a kit together of all the things. So you can take these regulators from a different vehicle and basically man you put them all together into your stock your stock fuel hat fuel assembly but you needed things like different hoses and barbs and all that other fun stuff and we spent all the time figuring that out so now I just kind of put it together so people can just buy this and make their problem go away.
1: So it really comes back to that first point you mentioned about highlighting a a problem and, and offering a solution.
0: Yeah and like I found I was able to find a company years ago that was selling these regular or was selling a set of regulators for these things, but it was just the regulator. The hose didn't fit, the clamps didn't work. Like it didn't include all the seals you needed, and I got so frustrated because I was spending almost like three hundred dollars for a fuel pressure regulator that I knew had to have come off another car. So I ended up doing a ton of research and testing and ordering parts over like a year, and finally figured out what we were using and what we can use. And what's going to fit and work and now it's kind of like okay you buy this you can fix your factory fuel pump everything will be good and you shouldn't have a problem for the next you know 10 years 20 years so that was like back to the hey let's fix these problems because if i'm annoyed other people are annoyed the water pumps are a pretty big thing lately the gen twos you can't get water pumps for them anymore in fact you can't get them for anything even up to the gen fives they don't make them anymore. Like Chrysler kind of just dropped the ball, even though they probably shouldn't have, because some of them are still under warranty. So we were working with a company that was developing that develops like the cnc impellers for us. And then we get all these water pumps rebuilt and basically like a remand center almost. So
1: Ah, okay. So you're still working with the factory housing, just uh, replacing bearings and impeller with your own your own products. Yep. Does that give you the advantage to engineer an improvement into it or is it just uh, a you know factory replacement
0: the impellers flow uh, it's 20 percent more coolant through the system there's just the way that they're designed it can push more which is obviously helping some of their overheating issues so between that and the fact that it's now a metal impeller versus the plastic impellers that would crack over time um, that was kind of the big thing we wanted to make sure that it wasn't going to break again which is probably a bad idea for a parts company to do, but <laughs> you know, I don't want my products failing. <laughs>
1: So it's always difficult to walk that tightrope between uh, making a product that has good reliability and, and one that actually needs to uh, be replaced. There's not a lot of benefit in selling a product and never seeing the customer ever again but um, yeah, I'll leave you to figure out where the happy medium sits in, in that particular situation. Have you got anything else lined up in terms of parts, any more problems that you've, you've kind of seen working on these cars that you think you could offer a solution to?
0: The other big thing was like spark plug wires. So I have a company that builds them all for us, but now that I'm at, I actually stock them. Whereas, like every other Viper company that sold wires, none of them stocked the wires. So, like, you'd be waiting 14 days to get a set. So, I now keep all of those in house with my logos on them. And, you know, if you need them, I can basically get them shipped out same day instead of waiting two weeks for some company to get it built and get it done
1: yeah and i think we live in a in a uh environment now where we want that instant gratification and certainly if we order some parts overnight it would be ideal so i think you know, you could you can obviously charge a premium when the parts are on the shelf because when someone wants them as well they're probably trying to fix an issue they don't want to have to wait two weeks to fix that issue
0: it just amazes me too like how many cars that even come through my shop and it's like those are the original plug wires They're like, yeah, but they're fine. And it's like, hold on. I shut all the lights off. I start the car. You see that blue spark that's arcing to the engine block? That's not right. (laughs) Right.
1: I think uh, a lot of people don't kind of appreciate the fact that some of these items really are consumables. And again, if I'm stretching my memory back, I I think it's sort of the plug leads on at least the first gen that I dealt with were were kind of that situation, much like the LS, where it's sort of jammed down between the headers. There's a lot of sort of ambient heat being radiated out towards the plug-wise. Is my memory surf correct there? You would be correct. Yeah, look at that. Still got it. <laughs>
0: still got it. It's still there.
1: All right, Mike, let's move towards wrapping this thing up. And we've got the same three questions I want to fire at you that we ask all of our guests. And the first of those is what's next in the future for you and Habit Performance? I think you've kind of already alluded a little bit towards some of the the development that's happening with the business, but uh, let's let's sort of elaborate on that a little bit more.
0: The plan is in the next year is to continue to grow the part side. So car, start selling more and more parts just to make sure that they're available for the people. Keep the cars alive is the big piece. But in the years to come, we're going to start doing more like car consignment and more, even more collection management and kind of grow another Not necessarily the same business but a parallel business to doing the car consignment aspect of things and keep growing the parts side of things just because it's a need and the service is always going to be there and if we can put the parts out to keep everyone else going, that's kind of the plan.
1: I guess like the obvious question for me is you've got this this Viper market on lock. You understand it, you know these cars inside and out and you're dominating that market. There's got to be a fair few other markets like this with these sort of Moderate to high value cars. And I'm sort of thinking, you know, Porsche would be another example where you've got enthusiasts that have a reasonable level of disposable income and want their cars or their car collections looked after, maintained, and modified. Have you considered branching out?
0: So actually, I got my fiance to buy a Porsche Macan. So we started servicing that and learning the car that platform, which now my other customers who have Vipers, but also have Porsches have started bringing me their cars to do some servicing. So we're kind of branching off into that. I have another customer who has a uh, Ferrari 360 GT race car. I do some maintenance on his car. So we're kind of branching off into some other things like Porsche and Ferrari, I haven't decided which route I'm gonna fully take. I'm definitely leaning towards the Porsche because I love them and every track event that I go to with some customers, it doesn't seem like the Porsche has too much of a like support in that er area, at least in my area. I go to the tracks and usually there's always different shops there helping support customer cars and everything else just like I'm doing and very rarely do I see too many Porsche guys out there helping their guys so curious about that kind of market and kind of going to eventually branch off into there because like we talked about with the there's only 32,000 Vipers out there
1: so, yeah it's a fairly narrow market even if that in and of itself is is quite a lot but uh, you've got a limited market that you're trying to pull from compared to the the Porsche platform you know obviously across the different models, a lot more.
0: Yeah, there's a lot to touch in that area. All
1: right, it'll be interesting to see what happens there. Next question, is there any advice you'd give to a younger version of yourself? And let's be honest, you are still relatively young. I I think you mentioned uh, off-air before that you're, you're sitting at about 30 years of age at the moment. Is that right?
0: Yep, I'll be 31 this year.
1: Okay. So still a spring chicken, but uh, (laughs) notwithstanding, is there any advice you could give to a younger version of yourself to fast track your career, maybe avoid some pitfalls that you may have come across in your time?
0: I've been following my plan for the most part to like a T and it's been working out pretty well. But the one thing that I still kick myself in the butt in is I should have been networking and a little bit earlier and asking for help. Because it's amazing at how many of like the older generation that aren't really doing this as much are there to be like, yeah, like, I'll help you out. Like, here, this is how you do this, this, and this, because they want to teach. They want, they want you to know what to do. So in the long run, you know, when they retire or pass away or anything else, like there's people there to maintain those things. And I, you know, like we talked about in the beginning, like I was always like, okay, like I have to keep this stuff close to my chest. I can't tell anybody. I can't ask for prop questions. I, I don't want to do that stuff. It'll make me look silly. And then like the more I networked and the more I made friends with other people, it was like, wait a minute, why aren't I asking these people for help or asking questions? Cause they've probably seen it and it's going to save me 10 hours of diag time if I just ask this one question. And now that I've built that like network of people.
1: It takes a big person though to ask that question the very first time.
0: Yeah. And now that I've built that network of people, they also ask me questions. So it's like, okay, this is fine. Like everything is good now.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm interested on this note as well, just to go a, a little bit deeper and a little bit off off topic. But uh, w- when you first started, you were quite young. You are still quite young. And uh, likewise, when I started my tuning business, I was sort of in that same situation. I think I was probably late teens at, at the best early 20s and, yeah. You know, I found breaking in particularly I started tuning a lot of rally cars that were running in the New Zealand Rally Championship, and I kind of got a few sideways glances from potential new clients like you know how how do you have the knowledge needed at your age as soon as I kind of got results, that kind of all fell away and became a a lesser issue. But is that something you've found or or not an issue? Obviously, again, you're dealing with uh, some maybe some high net worth clients that are probably inevitably a bit older as well.
0: I definitely think in the beginning, there were some parts of that. But as I continued to grow and that Viper collection grew, because I basically had the keys to the collection and it was like, I did all their maintenance. I did all their collection management. We did anything and everything to those cars. It was like, oh, if that guy trusts him with, you know, 50, 60 of his prides and joys, Vipers, then we should be able to trust him with them. And then, you know, them meeting me. And the big thing nowadays is I get on the phone, co- phone with them instead of just like texting or emailing, which like is pretty crazy to a lot of them because they don't expect you know, someone in the millennial generation to pick up the phone and have an actual conversation. And I've had guys tell me, they're like, well, like we realized that you were pretty young, we were a little worried, but after these phone calls, like we feel a lot better about it and we're sending you the car.
1: I mean, I think all of this becomes an irrelevancy after you've actually proven your capabilities by doing a job, but you know, it's a barrier to entry I quite often see to, to get access to the job in the first place, so it's, it's worth mentioning. And one more element, because you mentioned this, I just want to dive into on this one question here. You mentioned following your plan. I'm interested to sort of know how that plan's varied, and the reason I say this is you know, business 101. I think is you know the, the business plan is, is is everything, and I see a lot of people kind of spend the first three months before jumping into business developing this intricate plan, and it, it's pages and pages long, and then they get started and quickly realised that they didn't even know what they didn't know and the plan is irrelevant. I've kind of always been more along the lines of here's a high level plan on a a one year, a three year and a five year sort of plan or direction. At at HPA we we have quarterly goals and we sort of set those at the beginning of the quarter so we kind of bring them a bit more bite sized but I, I personally think the plan is relevant and important. To a point, but the old saying, you know, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. I think the more important element is also understanding when the plan is no longer relevant and being able to pivot in face of new information. Again, does does this sort of ring true with you, match your experience?
0: Without a doubt. I've always had like a high level, of like, hey, I want to get here in 5-10 years. So how do I continue to make that happen? And like you do each quarter, I do typically each quarter as well, just kind of, hey, where we're at, like, what can we do moving forward? What's the plan? And that's where like, we've talked about, like things have definitely pivoted, like I've started to get a little bit more into parts and kind of doing that stuff. And then a little bit more into consignment and doing that stuff. So like the plans kind of changed in the fact of like, I'm not doing just servers work anymore. We're kind of branching out and growing in parallel to everything else that's going on, but we're still going, pushing forward and getting to those, those end goals.
1: Perfect. Well this is uh, the longest wrap up in history but uh, great information anyway. We'll get on to the final question for you Mike which is if people want to learn more about you, uh, reach out, maybe uh, get you to um, look after their 60 strong Viper collection, how, how are they best to do so?
0: They can reach out to me on Facebook, Instagram. Instagram we're probably most active on Facebook we're pretty active on. I'm starting to do some more and more YouTube stuff like tech tips and whatnot. So they can always reach out to me there. Of course, they have my websites, so my email, my cell phones on there. So if they ever have any questions, they can reach out there. And even if they're just struggling with a problem, just shoot me a message, give me a call and I'll try my best to help you out. Like I'm not looking for anything, but I'd rather just help the community. So
1: perfect. All right, we'll put uh, links as usual to all of your accounts in the show notes to make it super easy for people to find you and follow you. Look, uh, being a great chat, I feel like I have learned a lot more than I ever thought I would about the the Viper. So great to get that insight. And uh, we wish you all the best for the future development of Havoc Performance. Thanks for coming along.
0: Thanks, man. I appreciate your time too. It was great meeting you.
1: If you enjoyed this episode of Tuned In with Mike, we'd love it if you could drop a review on your chosen podcasting platform. These reviews really help us to grow our audience, and that in turn helps us to continue to get more high quality guests. To say thanks, each week we'll be picking a random reviewer and sending them out an HPA t shirt free of charge anywhere in the world. This is also a great place to ask any questions you might have, and I'll do my best to answer them if your review gets picked. So, this week, a big shout out to Kawi Z from the USA, who has said, 5 star pod. I've listened to every episode multiple times on my third round currently and I learn something new every time. The podcast and the classes and webinars are the best. HPA makes great content, definitely recommended. Well thanks for the kind words there and if you get in touch with your t-shirt size and shipping details, we'll fire a fresh tea straight out to you. Alright that concludes our interview and before we sign off I just wanted to mention for anyone who's been perhaps hiding under a rock and hasn't heard of of High Performance Academy before, we are an online training school and we specialise in teaching a range of performance automotive topics, everything from engine tuning and engine building through to wiring, car suspension and wheel alignment, uh, data analysis and race driver education. Now remember you've got that coupon code, You can use Podcast 75 at the checkout to get $75 off the purchase of your first course. You'll find our full course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses. Important to mention that when you purchase a course from us, that course is yours for life as well. It never expires, you can rewatch the course as many times as you like, whenever you like. The purchase of a course will also give you three months of access to our gold membership. That gives you access to our private members only forum which is the perfect place to get answers to your specific questions. You'll also get access to our regular weekly members webinars, which is where we touch on a particular topic in the performance automotive realm, we dive into that topic for about an hour. If you can watch live, you can ask questions and get answers in real time.